0: 0230 and select one of our special thank you gifts from the archives collection. If you're having trouble deciding which program from the archives is best for you, we are offering a special holiday voucher for $50 redeemable for any program in the archives past, present, or future. It's the perfect gift this holiday season for all of your family and friends. Every donation you make helps us restore and digitize and make accessible another program that is in danger of being lost forever. So help us by making a donation now by calling 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230. Or donate online using our secure website, supportpra.org. That's supportpra.org, where you can see a complete list of thank you gifts. Remember, this is your history, and together we can help make these voices speak to future generations. Well, I was... Atoshi, and I were...
1: And you're listening to KPFA Berkeley, KPFB Berkeley, and KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Up next is Jennifer
0: Stone with Cover to Cover, followed by Free Speech Radio News. The ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school your money, every Friday, happy endings are the root, so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in love.
1: this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and I'm live today. I'm not in the archive, not dead yet. Ha, 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 rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. I was going through all my archive material the other day. There's so much of it. My entire apartment is stuffed. I think I should use it for landfill. In any case, I dug and dug and dug, looking for something that looked archival. Yes. She's already archival after a certain age. And uh, yes, we're in the middle, folks, of two days of fundraising. Uh, We have an archive down in Los Angeles. It's the repository of 50 years of, uh, what would you call it? Uh, uh, Radical memory, radical memory. And I'll give you the phone number at the end of my half hour. And in the meantime, Today, I thought what I would do is read you something archival. One of the first things that I used here on KPFA, uh, it was an essay in the Before Columbus Review, a quarterly review of multicultural literature. Uh, Yes, still at it, Women Writers or Lifestyles of the Wise and Feminist. (laughs) Lifestyles. Of the wise and feminist. It was about the same time there was a television show, of course, called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Uh huh. I'll bring copies of this to the KPFA Holiday Crafts Fair. I'm going to be there both days, all day. Saturday and Sunday, December 9 and 10. And I, let's see, I have four titles, four books, and I'll get some CDs made. For those of you who prefer uh who prefer to listen to these essays actually have quite a bit of fiction short stories that kind of thing I kind of like those best on CD uh in any case this is called lifestyles of the wise and feminist and it has a little a little um uh epitaph epigraph at the top uh I love those little, uh, little quotes at the top. Somebody says they're affected, but I like them because what they do, it's like a little token when you play hopscotch, you know, it throws something in the square there so that people know the tone, the, the, uh, what is it? The state of mind of the writer, uh, when, when they start reading the essay, uh, this one is from Charlotte Bronte it's just four words and Charlotte Bronte wrote nothing refines like affection That's the hardest statement I remember putting that on the board uh in a school once I was substitute teaching and the kids started to giggle and and get kind of silly and uh uh we tried to, well, we spent the whole hour defining affection, kindness, uh that kind of thing. Um was it we finally wound up with a parody. You know that statement uh about trying harder? I said, Why doesn't somebody try softer? Yes. Uh it's very difficult to be affectionate to people uh in the world we're living in today. Uh it can happen. I have a great relationship with my bus driver. Anyway. this is the essay, written 1993, that's not so long ago, anyway, it says, I'm looking at a cartoon in the Spectator, that's a magazine out of London, uh, on the cartoonist, yes, Williams, the cartoon sketches a 19th century woman with long flowing hair with a Victorian dress swept by the wind. She's standing alone out on the moors. She's got a cellular telephone pressed to her ear. The caption reads Heathcliff. Is it possible I'm not the only one who feels lost in the late 20th century? Yes. I just heard someone talking about the kids with all their laptops. I'm personally roadkill on the information highway. Anyway, here comes the millennium, and I haven't even integrated the past. Countless libraries are turning to dust. I haven't even digested the books in my uh, apartment. The World of Tomorrow is this post-literate landscape of multimedia intelligence. Yes, someone said that the art of the 21st century is the art of collage. I think words alone are not enough, at least not enough for most of the young people I know. How did we get here from there? And how do we get there... From here, is it a progression or a spiral or a rerun, a retro? Uh, When I went to school, they told me that literature was this rope. It was a rope I must use to climb out of a dark well of unknowing. Writers are the knots on the rope. (laughs) Now, there's an image, right. Now, looking back at that cartoon, I imagine that cellular phone as it turns into a celestial telephone. I thought to myself, now, why not call up the writers of the past? Just in case they're still hanging out with the angels, you know, up there sitting around on the seven celestial spheres having tea, with a heavenly um uh, some metaphor for meaning, anyway. I thought, well, I'll ask them how they feel about us here, now, the way we are. I want to know if they think we're more knowing, more conscious, self-conscious, than they were back then. What was it Gertrude Stein said? She said, in the 20th century, she said, Consciousness has replaced the soul. I don't know if that computes, but I think I know what she means anyway. I ask myself about all those women so long gone. Did they think the personal was political? Or did they know it in their bones so much that they didn't even have to say so? I'm going to call Pat Parker and ask... um, Now, Pat Parker is almost my contemporary. She has not been gone that long. Here's something she wrote in uh, a poem called Movement in Black, 1978. She wrote this. Firebrand Books published this poem. Brother, I don't want to hear about how my real enemy is the system. I'm no genius. But I do know that system you hit me with is called a fist. Yes, did they think the political was personal? <laughs> no question about it. Call Edna St. Vincent Millay. Yes, talk about tender. Terminally tender was Edna St. Vincent Millay. She writes, "I will love you, always, no matter what party is in power." <laughs> I always think of that line when I see couples breaking up over the elections. You know, I'm confused. Quick, call up Audrey Lord. Uh, Audre Lorde's message machine says, uh, never leave your pen lying in somebody else's blood. That is for sure. Too many of us trying to write about that which we know not. I know I must find my own voice in my own age. Still, Virginia Woolf says, we think back through our mothers if we are women. And today's chorus of women writers goes back only, oh, a few centuries. Uh, Personally, I think that they were writing and talking since forever, but, you know, uh, (laughs) this stuff didn't get preserved. It didn't get into the archives. I have a footnote here. I'm breaking up my essay, chattering away. Uh, The great Germaine Greer was once teaching, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And she was there at the university and she sent a letter to all of us, uh, those of us who had published books early on in the feminist movement in the 70s. And she said, uh, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna, uh, write us off again. She said, so send me your books and I'll put them in the basement. She got some money from some millionaires in Tulsa. Some women in Tulsa were willing to give her. Uh, money to make an archive, I'm going to call the university uh, there in Tulsa, Oklahoma and see if that happened because I'm always looking for a copy of, you know, the Bitch Manifesto or um, the Scum Manifesto, one of those wild and crazy essays that uh, are no longer in fashion anyway. Uh, okay, I'm going to start with... My ancestor, Mary Wollstonecraft, let's see, let's call her. She's back in the 18th century. Uh, She's the mother of Mary Shelley, you remember her. Her dates are 1759 to 1797. Let's see, that's basically 200 years before my oldest son. 200 years ago, Mary Wollstonecraft published her feminist manifesto, A Vindication of the Rights of Women. Well, much to my surprise, Wollstonecraft picks up the phone. I feel I know this woman. I can talk to her easily. I persuade her to come along with me. I want her to attend a 12-step recovery group right here in Berkeley, California. Well, she arrives topless. She's dressed as Delacroix's Liberty in that famous painting. You remember Liberty at the Barricades. You remember the one where Liberty is leading the masses uh, in the French Revolution. She explains that she's been trying for decades to get Delacroix to let her pose for it. Of course, now, he didn't paint it until after the July Revolution of 1830, and Mary's brush with Robespierre's terror took place in seventeen ninety three. That was when she went to Paris to help the Revolutionary Committee with the future of female education après the fall of the ancient regime. Uh I love the thing about um these ancestors of mine, you know, they can pick up things uh from those who come after them. <laughs> yes, a- a- Emily Bronte is always hanging out with Carl Jung. <laughs> they have a lot in common. But in any case, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft uh, finally got hold of Delacroix to, to put her in the painting uh, of Liberty Leading the People. Uh, I'm not sure she'd go for the uh, wet t shirt contests of today. Uh, and uh, the truth is, Even bare breasted styles are a bit progressive, uh, in the 90s, uh, but you know, she likes to be, she likes to be at the crest of the wave. She puts on my t shirt, the t shirt that reads, If you don't believe in abortion, don't have one. She fits right in at the meeting for abuse survivors. Now, Mary Wollstonecraft has the familiar scenario. Her story includes the abusive father, masochistic and negligent mother, a betrayal by a mother surrogate who sexually abused her when she was a child. She understands the need for psychological safe space, but she begins to fidget when she hears scripture being used. We have to leave the meeting because she uh she will not submit to the um Oh, let's call it the jargon. She says she will submit only to reason. She believes that our higher power is simply our wiser self, what Freud calls the superego. I'm shocked to learn that she does hang out with Sigmund Freud on the other side, but she shrugs and says, no problem, he's just a poet, uh, just images, you know. The Brontes, she tells me, yes, do hang out with Carl Jung uh, because he is twice the poet that Sigmund is. She says that Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud bicker a lot about the id. Uh, One of them insisting it's the old brain, the other one believing it's the inner child. Mary doesn't care for this concept of the inner child. She says that in her day... Many of the men she knew let their inner child run away with their outer adult and then they became men like her brother who stole her inheritance on the premise that she and her two sisters were incompetent to deal with uh, money or property. Mary Wollstonecraft and I find our way to a bakery. It resembles one of the coffee houses from her own time. She smells the freshly baked rolls, but after all, she is only a shade, and so she can't enjoy them. Always the melancholia with Mary Wollstonecraft. It makes her feel deprived, just the way she felt when she was alive. She only had 38 years on earth, and most of them were spent in poverty, loneliness, isolation. As we sit enjoying my cinnamon bun, she questions me about what she observes as the yuppie peril. She finds uh, women and men in the 90s uh, to be unsophisticated, unworldly. She asks me, is this because America is so rich? Uh, She said, your people seem surprised to discover that life is unfair. They seem to feel that pain is uh, unnatural. We talk about the concept of denial and then we talk about the study of psychology. She says psychology simply killed the novel. (laughs) She does admit that Freud thinks psychoanalysis is the study of self-deception. She says that... uh, survival depends on self-deception. Uh, she does think that there were as many multiple personalities in her time as there are today, but she is convinced personally that she never lost sight of herself. I always knew what hit me, she declared, even if I chose to run away from it every chance I got. Oh, did you marry, I say, swallowing my cinnamon bun quickly? because she has this hungry expression. Is that why you clung to that American adventurer, Gilbert Imlay, the father of your first child, Fanny? I've read that that pile of letters you wrote to him. You let it all hang out just like any woman who loves too much. You wrote to him that in spite of his indifference. You had a right to be happy and that you had a responsibility to your own sacred emotions and uh, not even he could extinguish your divine spark. All that and then you go and throw yourself off Putney Bridge. Lucky for you, there were some boatmen on the river getting you out before your divine spark was quite extinguished. (laughs) Parenthesis here. Mary's first child, Fanny Imlay, uh, succeeded where Mary had failed. She threw herself off Putney Bridge. In 1812, at the age of 22, her drowned body was identified by her mother's initials, which were found on her corsets. Like mother, like daughter, yes, Mary regrets she was never able to live up to her own ideals. It's the old story... The Revolutionary, Whose Personal Life is a Shambles. Oh, there's such a long list of those. Um, I used to think, I think that's the reason why I fell in love with Gertrude Stein. It's because of all the women writers I ever came across, she seems to be the one who had the most fun, who had the most joy in her life. And, of course, uh she had her bumps as well, but... uh This tragic sense of life is pretty hard. Uh, So many feminist women. Anyway, Mary's lovers told her that her ideals were only illusions. Any of this sound familiar? (laughs) I was listening to Gloria Steinem be interviewed the other night, and they won't let her off the hook. Anyway, obviously, there have been women throughout history who have tried to transcend their lives. But self-esteem can be a problem, especially if you're a loser. Uh, and of course we're all of us losers. Mary wrings her hands and says she never got beyond her own pain. In fact, she was so hurt that she abused her own child. Well, not only that, I tell her, but you abuse some of the better substances. Opium? Laudanum, the wine of opium, yes. Laudanum, brandy, wine, American tobacco, gin. Talk about self-destructive. Personally, I think you were heroic. Heroic people do extraordinary things with ordinary lives, and it took guts to be as melancholy and neurotic as you were. Took guts to use all that rage to write. You didn't ask to be cured. You didn't expect to recover or heal. You demanded justice. Mary looks at me with her sad eyes. Is that what you think, she says? That I lost love and employment and my own child but gained my own soul? Truth is that fame brought me little personal joy. I would have given it all up just for a chance to go on living with William. William Godwin was Mary Wollstonecraft's husband and the father of her second child, later Mary Shelley. Uh, She says, I might have been able to work in peace and find true companionship if I hadn't died of septicemia, that's childbed fever, five days after the birth of her child. She died of infection, right. Mary knew that her rage was the rage of reason. She said, no, no, it was not men she hated. It was violence. How many feminists have we heard say that? (laughs) A young woman I know the other day, I was giving her some books on the history of women. And she said, oh no, no, can't read that. They might make me, it might make me hate men. I said, darling, I said, you know, don't worry. Uh, if women hated men, it would all be over by Friday. No, there's no question about that. No, no, no hope at all. Uh Women have always adored men. Anyway, Mary and I walk the streets together and browse in the bookshops. We... Uh, Talk to students, and we watch the mass media. She sees what she calls vice, greed, avarice. All your electricity doesn't shed much light, she says. A lot of heat, no light, she turns off the TV. Here in North America, she sees what she calls the death of the heart. I, tells her, I tell her she has an antique heart, that most moderns would find her sentimental. That strikes her as quite comic. <laughs> now, just how, she asks, would a people as devoid of sensibility as your society has become, how could they recognize sentimentality? You are a people who believe that virtue has something to do with how your clothes are worn. Just as it was in my own time, the only true Christians are to be found among your poor. In your world, too, this is a quote from Mary Wollstonecraft, most virtue is to be found in low life. Many poor women maintain their children by the sweat of their brow and keep together families that the vices of the fathers would have scattered abroad. End of the quote. I think here of the children in the developing world, we know that the small loans to uh, beginning entrepreneurs in the developing world uh, are most useful when they are given to women, to mothers, who will take care of whole families. Mary recognizes the women we call crack grandmothers, she exalts these women and shakes her head at self-indulgent, ruling class women and men, saying that these people have been, quote, softened rather than refined by civilization. End quote. At some point, I begin to get defensive and argue, and I say, but Mary, what about self-realization and individuation and the path of the artist? Today, we are breaking through to ever deeper levels of consciousness. You have to know who you are before you can know what you want. She looks at me with those sad eyes. (laughs) And what is it you think you want, she asks. Oh, oh, I don't know, I sputter. I I, I want to be a poet. I want to be an artist. She smiles and picks up her pen. (laughs) Trifling employments have rendered woman a trifler, end quote. Mary Wollstonecraft's shade fades into the warm oven of a corner bakery and she consoles me. We too, she says, wanted to be poets amid impediments. Call up the Bronte sisters and ask them how they did it. (laughs) I think I'll save the Bronte sisters until next week. And I hope to see all of you at the KPFA Holiday Crafts Fair. And today, I want you to support our vital work here at Pacifica. I want you to pledge online at www.supportpra, Pacifica Radio Archives, supportpra.org. The phone number is 1-800-735-0230 one eight hundred seven three five oh two three oh
0: at the recommendation of the Finance Committee of the Pacifica National Board of Directors six directors have proposed an amendment to Article six Section One of the Pacifica bylaws. This amendment would reduce the required number of annual in-person Pacifica National Board meetings from four to three and would continue the practice of alternating the board meetings among the five foundation radio station signal areas. This amendment will be voted on at the January 26th through 28th, 2007 p meeting in Houston, Texas, and by each of the five network stations' local station board delegate assemblies. It must pass by a majority vote at three of the five stations. For the full text of this bylaws amendment, log on to pacifica.org, or call 510-849-2590, extension 207, to request a copy by mail.